That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. Hi, my name is Wright Thompson, and my dilemma is both simple and very hard. I need to stop eating so much damn red meat. Ah, so this is an intriguing dilemma because after speaking with you, I know that you grew up on a farm and you're also very empathetic. Those things would lead me to believe that, you know, being around animals, even when they are not yet to be eaten, when they're just pets or around you or dealt with in in ways that are not uh, dead, I suppose, uh, would make you feel empathy towards them as creatures and therefore be less likely to want to eat as many of them. That is how I ended up being where I am now, which is as a pescatarian, mostly vegetarian, the occasional fish. And a couple things happened to me. If you listen to my previous podcast with Gretchen Rubin, it was a lightning bolt moment wherein I saw a video of a little pig named Pickles and his owner said, Pickles, you want a belly rub? And this little pig ran around the corner and then slid in on its back, belly up to get a belly rub. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going to be eating pigs for a while. And then I read about how they're basically dogs and they're smart as dogs and they're wonderful. And so I took a break from just all meat after Pickles and now I just haven't eaten it in like two years. So I don't know if you can have your lightning bolt moment because I don't think you actually want to quit altogether. You just want to eat less red meat. If you are moved by big, massive reasons, climate change is one for you. There's plenty of research out there that dining on a lot of red meat is part of the cause of our climate change issues. And if average people would cut down on their red meat ingestion by even a small amount, it would make a massive difference in terms of our climate. So you can be a part of that. You can tell yourself every time you have a choice to make that by buying and ingesting less red meat, you're in fact helping the survival of our planet. If that's too big picture for you, you could instead look up all the research about the health of a human body if it ingests too much red meat, cholesterol, and heart disease and everything else. Uh, Perhaps you could give yourself some sort of budget for red meat, something that's more simple Give yourself X amount of dollars per week or month that you're allowed to spend on it and realize that it can only go so far. So you have to make other choices when you run out. Uh, I get the feeling that you're the kind of person that makes a decision and sticks with it. And so you have not yet convinced yourself that any of those reasons are good enough reasons to eat less of it because you like it so much. So uh, if none of those work, I suppose uh, maybe get hypnotized and see if the hypnotism will fix it. That's all I got for you. The commish has spoken. My guest this week is Wright Thompson. He's a senior writer for ESPN, executive producer of True South and Backstory. He's got a new podcast coming out soon and a new five-part documentary that he's co-directing with Seth Wickersham coming out soon as well. You'll hear about both of those a little bit. Uh, We also talk about how hard it is to find someone to take a chance on you and how that may be the biggest divider between people who work in our industry and excel and people who never quite make it, why he always wants to, quote unquote, send the elevator back down because of that, because of how hard it is to get a break, how he's happiest when he's with a group of people in a foxhole doing their thing and finding the right co-editors and people to work with on a story is the key to his happiness and his success. He also talks about place and how writing about place is very important, but also the relationships with the people you work on stories with is far more important than the outlet that you're writing for or even the job itself. 
uh, his process for long form writing, which I'm sure any of you out there who are interested in doing this or who are already doing it uh, would love to hear the nitty gritty of how he sits down and preps and outlines for a big story. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this conversation. That's what she said. I'm so excited to talk to Wright Thompson, um, not because I want to pick his brain about all of his amazing writing and his career, which is, of course, the main goal of this, but also because I find him to be a bit of a mystery. Uh, he is not, as far as I know, on social media. He is mostly accessible via his work and not in other ways. And I've only met him, I think, once in person. Um, and so I've created a specter of Wright Thompson, this uh, larger than life uh, completely unattainable, amazing talent. And so I love having people on my podcast that I don't really know at all because I get to know them more. And maybe at the end of this, I will still see you as a larger-than-life talent, but perhaps more as a human being instead of the, this creation that I have in my head of someone who's very scary, really, is is what you are to me. And I don't think you're probably a very scary person in in real life, right? No, but I do like the idea that I exist in your personal zeitgeist like that. <laughs> yeah, so I, I really you do. Hang up right now. I was going to say maybe this will ruin that though. <laughs> maybe it'll have yeah, the opposite effect. <laughs> I, I find that the idea of me is always better than the actual thing. So this is <laughs> Ain't that the way it always is? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let's talk about growing up in Mississippi. Uh, what were you like as a kid? I was like this. Like it's funny. <laughs> I mean, in some ways, I'm very. I've been very static. I mean, I also am very lucky to have grown up in such a strange, idiosyncratic place. I'm from Clarksdale, Mississippi, which is in the Delta, uh, which, you know, it's interesting. Like, I like to joke that, you know, Mississippi doesn't have a professional sports team, but I always say that it does. It's the Chicago White Sox. Since so much of the south side of Chicago was people from the Mississippi Delta. I mean, when I'm, if I'm ever there driving around, it's interesting how much it feels like home uh but i'm from clarksdale mississippi which is a very odd place and if if there is a recurring theme in these stories that i write it's that in most of them place is the central character and i think that absolutely flows from childhood because for you where you grew up was very much a part of making you who you are well that and also it, it just if you were going to live there and not just be totally brain dead you had to reckon with the contradictions of it and having to do that just as a person in civilian life trains your brain to work a certain way i think Hmm. what were some of the most obvious contradictions well that it's this terribly poor place with tiny pockets of extreme wealth built on the back of the poorest of those people i mean it's no accident that you know, Cahoma County, Mississippi is one of the poorest counties in America, and it's also the home of the Delta Blues. It's no surprise that, you know, when Muddy Waters left the Delta to go to Chicago and take those field blues and plug them into guitar amps, I mean, on one end of that string is the Mississippi Delta, which is rural, and on the other end is Chicago, which is the city. And so, you know, those rural country blues and the Chicago blues that flowed out of them, which is a pretty straight line from Robert Johnson to Sunhouse to Muddy Waters to Buddy Guy, who you can still go see in Chicago, yeah. flows right out of where I'm from. And, I mean, that's that's mentor to mentor to mentor to mentor. I mean, that, that's a really straight artistic genetic line, and all of that complication and contradiction is very visceral just out in the open when you're there. 
just saw Buddy Guy last year at his place, and then I saw him with the Rolling Stones a couple years ago too, which was pretty amazing. I love how the Stones acknowledge and talk about the what they got from from that blues music. I read that your father was really integral in making where you grew up somewhere that people wanted to visit because of blues music. It was always very important to him. One of his clients was a was a a, a bluesman named uh, Big Jack Johnson, the Oil Man, and uh, you know he was just always really involved in that music. My father was from a little town called Bentonia, Mississippi, which has its own kind of blues. Uh, Skip James, Jack Owens, just a, it has a very specific style of blues that uh, you know the urban legend is that it, when guys went off to to fight in the war, uh, I guess this would have been World War One, that it would have been a mixture of sort of the country blues they knew with the Django Reinhardt style guitar they heard in Europe. And when they came home, it was a whole new style. I don't actually know if that's true. I'm figuring uh, if someone knows that story. I'm uh, right ESPN at Gmail, but let right. me know. I mean, it, but I've always wanted that music has always been important in our family and it was very important to my dad, both as a fan of the music and also just as someone who didn't want to see the town where we live just completely drop and blow away. Right. So you're super into the the music and, and your father was also very much into politics. Were you invested in sports beyond, of course, the golf that drew you together at a young age that uh, most of us have probably read about in your great piece about your father? You know, we like sports, but I think in the normal way. I mean, I went to every, I went to an Ole Miss football game basically every Saturday. They were at home for my childhood. Uh, so that, but that was much more social for me than, you know, for a long time it was social. And then look, every 13 year old person, what well, I guess, what are the prime sports years? Like nine to 14? Like, yeah, I would say, know. yeah, you could you could grow up younger than that and have it in like sort of ingrained. But to actually become aware and choose it, I would say you have to be a little bit older. It's like, you know, it's after you after you stop playing with dolls, but before you can drive, it's sort right. of prime sports material. Right. So I was a huge sports fan then. But I mean, you know, when I went to college, I wanted, you know, to write about music. I mean, I was randomly assigned to sports at the college newspaper. Hmm. Uh, so it's funny in that regard that this all just sort of happened. Yeah, so I, I read that when you were younger and you had a paper route, you were reading North Toward Home by Willie Morris, and that was when you said, okay, I want to be a writer. But at the time, you wanted to write long-form magazine pieces about life and not and not sports itself, right? Totally. I mean, you know, ro- working for Rolling Stone was my dream. You know, uh, that was sort of what I imagined. And, you know, in college, I i mean, what I wanted more than anything in the entire world was to write for Sports Illustrated. I mean, hmm. the news of the last couple of weeks has been such a bummer for anybody yeah. who cares about these kind of stories. I mean, even though there are technically our competitors or were, uh, it is, it, it's just a sad thing in the, life of this particular kind of craft that I mean all I wanted in the world was to work for Sports Illustrated. So when they put you into sports how long did it take for you to say oh okay I can do all the things that I thought I wanted but within this construct? Pretty quickly uh you know for better for worse I'm a real pleaser 
And so when the editor started giving me assignments that were increasingly more difficult, at first I just, I'm a pleaser and I'm very competitive and I'm hard on myself, which is either a terrible or a magic combination, probably both. <laughs> and, uh, but I, you know, I have never really felt stifled. Even now, I've been doing this a long time. And there's never a, never some big idea that I've ever been interested in that I haven't been able to figure out a way to explore. So you went to University of Missouri. You worked for the Columbia Missourian at the, uh, or did they say Missourian out there? I, I don't know what they say. I say Missourian. I mean, come okay. on. Okay. Just want to make sure it's like Louisville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You might get hit over the head. Uh, so you, <laughs> you were writing for the uh, paper at the School of Journalism there, and that's where you cut your teeth as a writer and, and in sports. Um, and I, I'm fascinated by the idea that you would not get a single internship after your sophomore year, that you applied to all of them and didn't get any. Have you magically Correct. transformed? Like, what? how? What, what What? was wrong with you then? It feels like you already would have been probably a, a quite successful writer at that point. Well, it's a lesson for anybody who wants a job is that very often the gatekeepers are dumb very often. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, I mean, like in a lot of these places, they don't know how to tell the difference. Have you ever seen that movie, The American President? Uh, uh, yeah. There's uh-huh. a scene in there that, you know, the Aaron Sorkin movie with Michael Douglas. And, and yeah. there's that scene where he's like, they don't drink the sand because they're thirsty. They drink the sand because they don't know the difference. Mm. And. It, the hardest thing in the world is to find someone who'll take a chance on you. There are a lot of people, I think, who could learn to do our jobs. There are the hardest thing in the world is getting in the door, I think. And I mean, I, I try really hard to, you know, my friend Tom Franklin, who's my neighbor, who's a novelist, always says, I mean, his phrase for it is, you got to send the elevator back down. And mm. I mean, I remember all those rejections and have always tried to really do that because you know a vote of confidence in someone is very often it's the difference between a them getting a job but also b from believing in themselves enough to do the job i mean yes you you probably you're from chicago right right Mm -hmm. so like my earliest and most important mentor was rick tellender you couldn't be more important in my life than rick and it started because he was the first person who ever really said you can do this you know, I mean, who read a story and was like, this is, you know, this has a lot of problems, but the essential soul of it is there and you can do this. And so what was the difference between me and the sophomore in college? I mean, some of it was I got my shot and some of it was I found people who believed in me in a way that maybe I didn't believe in myself. So essentially what I've done is started an answer saying one thing and ended it by saying something completely different, which is why I'm terrible <laughs> on television. No, it makes sense though. And, and it also is what's so frustrating when we do try to help out people coming up is to say it's networking, it's who, you know, but how do you know anyone if you don't, you know, it's, it's, a, it's this catch 22. Um, but you do believe that one of the reasons you did get that first gig after your junior year was because the sports editor was from Mizzou, which is where you were going to school. Oh. And sometimes that's all you need is just that little connection. Oh, not some of it was the entire reason. <laughs> I mean, like, let's be real there, You know, I mean, it, it wasn't like Richard Ben Kramer was hiding those clips or anything. I mean, it was, <laughs> you know, it was some Mizzou mafia shit. <laughs> 
so you're at the New Orleans Times Picayune, and uh, you wrote about LSU there, and that was between junior and after senior year. How important was that for you in terms of figuring out whether you wanted to be a newspaper writer versus some of the dreams you had had uh, before about writing for magazines or more long form? Well, I mean, one, it certainly clarified it. I mean, I liked, I liked the rush of a beat, but I didn't like. I didn't want to. I, it was clear I didn't want to be doing that forever. But it was also clear to me that I was continually frustrated when I felt like I was pulling up short of the most complete level of understanding about a subject that I could have. I just found myself endlessly frustrating frustrated mm-hmm. by that. So I knew that I wanted to be able to take more time. Uh, you know, there's not much difference between the stories I was writing for the, that I wrote for the Kansas city star and the stories I write now in terms of intent. I mean, it's not like, you know, anything I'm doing now, they would have let me do in the star if I would have been able to. So it's not like there was a huge difference between that sports section and the way a magazine sees things. I mean, the difference was that I just didn't know how to do it yet because I hadn't met Jay Lovinger, I mean, we'll get to. But, right. you know, it, it was interesting in New Orleans. I was covering a women's NCAA tournament game in Boulder, and there was one of those off, full off days, you know. And so I was skiing, and while I was skiing, some NCAA investigation at LSU broke, and I had to go do it. And I was just like, this sucks. <laughs> like, I, I want to be skiing. I don't want to be, you know. Like, I don't know. It was a real... I didn't do it much longer after that. Didn't want to be at the whims of the breaking news. Uh, I can no. understand that. So, yeah, you get to the Kansas City Star. You cover all sorts of things, Final Four, Super Bowls, Masters, Kentucky Derby. Um, and I loved reading about your relationship with Mike Fannin, the idea of this Sunday centerpiece and this ritual that you had week after week. Can you tell me about that? Well, I mean, I lived on the road a lot of the time. But basically, you know, some some of them were home games and some of them were road games. But I... We would go have lunch Monday in Kansas City at Manny's or Genghis Khan or, uh, you know, usually one of those two, Bryant's or Gates sometimes, and figure out what the Sunday centerpiece would be. I would, you know, either be reporting or be on a ro- on the airplane to go report Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, usually travel home Friday or already be at home, wake up super early. I still smoked then. Uh, God, I haven't had a cigarette in <laughs> 16 years congratulations uh, it's impressive i uh, know but like i miss it like no you know, people, like i don't want, <laughs> i don't want, i don't want i don't understand how people smoke when they're drinking because like i don't want one cigarette i want 50 <laughs> cigarettes uh so i would like light the sons of bitches off of each other uh, and then i would write <laughs> saturday morning and then i would drive it out to mike fannin's house we would edit it on my laptop, send it in, and then cook a steak and watch a, watch NFL games and hang out and then have lunch on Monday and do it again. We did that for four or five years. And that kind of relationship and, is huge, right, in terms of helping you figure out that you can tell the stories that you want, be supported by someone, and have the time and, and, and money to do it? Well, it, it, it certainly set the standard for me because I don't – that's what I want now is I want a group of people in a foxhole doing a thing. And I'm feel like I'm successful and happy when I find that. And when it gets upended, I feel like I am 
lost and wandering and am often seeking to put it back together again. I've been very, very lucky to have really stable, great editor-writer relationships. I mean, I've gone from Mike Fannin to Jay Lovinger to Paul Kicks to Eric Neal. I mean, seamlessly. So, And every one of those guys is great. And so, you know, I've just been very, very lucky. I mean, when people are talking to me about where should I go work, I mean, find an editor. Don't, I don't, you know, the coolness of the business card wears off very quickly. But, you know, those, you know, the relationship, a really great relationship with an editor, I always like to think of it is that the stories are almost accidental, accidental byproducts of the relationship. Like, mm. it's like you're just in a constant conversation about storytelling and life and, and things you're interested in, things in your own life that concern you and worry you or inspire you. And the stories are almost getting generated and spit out the side of that as you're doing this other primary thing. I love that the writer who focuses on place says the place is not the thing, it's the relationship. But I know those two are different. I still I still I love it. Um I have I have uh, any number. I've had a, a bunch of different editors. I haven't had that sort of um, relationship, but I haven't done a lot of long form stuff. And I remember once that I put in a story, ain't nobody got time for that. Very specifically, it's a meme. It was a joke. It was intentional. And the editor changed it to nobody has any time for this. And that was one of those where I was like, yeah, this ain't, this ain't going to work. This is not my person here. Do you have a moment like that or several moments with an editor or with a story where it just it either is funny or traumatizing that you realize like oh yeah this isn't this isn't it oh well, I mean there's a uh, I mean there was an editor who will not be named who is no longer at ES who's no longer at ESPN who was at the magazine who just hacked the story to pieces and then when it was over said just be glad it's over ooh and I was like oh my god that's <laughs> not great uh, the funniest one is there was a writer in Kansas City named Mike Diarmond who wrote a, I hope I get this right, because this is so funny. So, uh, who wrote a lead. Do you remember Tara Knott, the Olympic weightlifter? I don't know if I do. She, so, this was a, a long time ago. And, by the way, this is the single most sexist lead I've ever heard in my life. I'd forgotten about this. And as I just thought about it, I'm like, I can't believe you sent that in. <laughs> so, I mean, Tara Knott's a weightlifter. So, assume what you will. But the lead was, Scarlett O'Hara, comma, Tara's not. Ooh. Ooh. And the copy editor left that, left the crazy she's not attractive bit, but changed it to Scarlett O'Hara, Tara isn't. Oh, no. Oh, no. So, kill the pun, <laughs> but left in the right. super sexy <laughs> Let's get rid of all the artistic, uh, you know, yeah. loveliness Let's surrounding it really and strip it down to just straight thing. sexism. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like, we're going to lose the clever bit and keep the super <laughs> shitty mean bit. Uh, oh, it's stuff. I love that stuff. I mean, you can't make that shit up. I just... Yeah. I just... Yeah, and it's it's hard if you have any sense of humor because the other person has to have one, too, and know what, what timing is and beats and all that stuff. Uh, so, yeah. so you're at the KC Star, and obviously it sounds like your relationship with Mike Fannin was wonderful. Um, what brought you to ESPN, and why did you want to leave? Well, I mean, one, you work at the Kansas City Star, you always have this nagging suspicion that you're writing these stories that no one is reading. Uh, and, you know, Mike and I parted on very good terms. I think that he knew I needed, he knew I wanted to go somewhere, you know, 
with the stories, there was a level I wanted to get to that I didn't know how to get to, and maybe he didn't know how to get me to, you know? I mean, it was, when the ESPN offer came, you know, I'd had previous offers that I'd turned down, uh, and he was always, you know, very like, you don't want that job. And then when this job came along, he was like, this is the one you've been waiting on. I think you should take this. I mean, he was very much like, you need to go do this. This is mm. this is the next thing for you. I mean, Mike and I are still very close. I mean, Mike was in my wedding. I, every time I'm in Kansas City, which isn't that much anymore, the bummer. Uh, you know, I just went and had lunch with Mike. Uh, so he, he and I are very, very close. So when you got to ESPN, did you anticipate it being different or was it much different than your experiences previous to it? It wasn't that much different. I mean, it was... You know, it was the scale was larger and the map we were covering was larger, but the ambition was about the same. I mean, I'd come from a place where it mattered to people that everything in the paper be great. And so moving to another place like that felt very natural and similar. I mean, Jay Lovinger, who was my editor for a very long time, was the thing that was different because, I mean, he just, it was just a, you know, Sort of in one way, it was like I'd never written a story before. Mm. And in many ways, I can't read anything that I wrote before he and I started working together. I mean, there just was a level of myself that I wasn't accessing that now when I go read those old stories, all I can see is that. If you had to try to pin down what changed because of Lovinger, what was it? Or what he taught you that changed your writing? Well, I mean, it was both the technical thing, you know, how to actually put stories together. But more than that, it was, you know, every single story, you know, when people talk about literary sports journalism, what they really mean is a story about X that's also about Y. And mm-hmm. the Y should be something about the human condition, small or large or huge and tectonic or small and deeply personal. And that when both of those things were working, you know, not just parallel to each other, but almost on top of each other together, then the things can be really special. And so thinking of stories like that from the beginning was revelatory. And also the idea that, you know, if all editors do is mess with words on a page, they're doing it wrong. You know, that the front end conversation. Right just extensive front-end conversations are much more valuable than anything they, any words they change. I mean, Jay would pound and pound ruthlessly on your ideas much more than the words. And you've talked about how you don't think writing, it is, of course, the words, but it's more so what story you're telling, what obstacle the person has to overcome, what the structure is. Well, there's a lot of architecture to it that, you know, starts out very intentional and I think becomes slightly more innate. I mean, I often find when a story isn't working, it's because I'm cheating the process and I haven't spent enough time outlining. And, you know, it's the same way, like, I don't really think there's such a thing as writer's block. I just think you don't have anything to say yet about this particular thing. Hmm. Uh, You know, it's interesting. I mean, I... uh, some people are really good at just faking it. I don't see how, you know, people, you know, you can have a something to say about everything. I, I really, I need to have 
it, it's hard for me to find that intersect. You know, I do these game day essays every now and then, and I very rarely just do one like, hey, we need 60 seconds on athlete X. And it's because I just, when I try to do those, I find that they feel very inauthentic. That like, I don't even believe the shit I'm saying, you know? And so I I really try not to do that. uh, If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you pick a story? Does it, does it come to you? Is it in your contract that you have, you know, six to eight per year? Do they come to you and say, we want you to write about this? How does it work usually? I mean, it's a mix, frankly. Uh, You know, some are assignments and some are things I wanted to do. I mean, let me see. I have a, I have a word doc. I mean, I have a Dropbox with every story I've ever done. Mm. So let's see here. By, by 2018, that was last year. Uh, I wrote about the captain of Fiorentina. That was me. I wrote about Juventus. That was me. I wrote about Barack Coley. That was then. I wrote about Paul Pogba, that was them. I wrote about Gino Ori Emma, that was them. I wrote about Alex Ferguson, that was me. I wrote about Ichiro, that was me. I wrote about Dale Murphy, that was me. Uh, I wrote about the AC Milan goalie, that was me. And I wrote about, what is that? I don't know what the hell that is. <laughs> I don't I have no idea. Oh, oh I, no, that's next year. So, I mean, that's, a, that's roughly, you know, it's a mix. Yeah. I loved your story on Ichiro. It was uh, it was so sad, but it was uh, really honest. And I wonder when you're writing about people um, who maybe aren't as known, and I would say that that opened up a lot of people to the truth about Ichiro, or even someone like um, Theo Epstein, who you reveal yeah. some interesting things about that maybe he wouldn't want people to know, like he follows people down the street just to not be seen. Um how do you balance wanting to expose the truth about them and tell the story about them with maybe any empathy you have or fear you have about putting them in a light that isn't positive, even if it's the truth? Because I have issues with that mainly just because I'm overly empathetic to a fault at times. Well, I mean, the empathy is empathy is the key tool in doing all this. I mean, if you're not empathetic, uh, then you just have no shot of understanding people. I mean, that said, you know, I mean, Tom, you know, who works with us, uh, said one time that the hardest thing in the world is to tell the truth, despite all of the things conspiring to keep you from doing it. And at the end of the day, my obligation, you know, if I'm writing a story about you, my obligation is not to you. And that, you know, comfort with that is a process. And, it definitely takes time. I mean, I, you know, if somebody hates something, it's not great. Right. The flip side of that, if somebody loves it, then I'm usually freaking out. Right. That you didn't do it. If somebody's like, that was perfect. I'm like, Oh no. (laughs) You know, uh, you know, there are very few that come out where people are like, you know, I loved it. That, you know, that that would that would make me really queasy. Are there many where they've hated it? No, I don't think anybody's hated it. I think people have, you know, 
there have been complicated reactions. I mean, Michael Jordan called his people up and were like, how did he find all this stuff out? And they were like, uh, Michael, you told him. And he was like, oh, shit. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, and a lot of it is like I'm pretty transparent with people. I mean, there was nothing in that Tiger Woods story, for instance, that they didn't know was coming down the pipe. Right. So, you know, I don't want people to be surprised and I don't want people to ever feel misled. I don't send suck up emails to get access. I try right. to be really honest about what is interesting to me about them at the beginning with the understanding that that evolves and changes. I just don't ever want to have to sit in Rob King's office with an angry agent or source who's waving this email around that I have to try to defend when I know I'm wrong. You know, right. I don't ever want to have to eat one of those things where I'm like, you know, technically I didn't lie, but I'm an obsequious, disingenuous son of a bitch. Like, I don't right. ever want to feel like that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. And, and the honesty is huge. I'm sure. Was there a point in your career where it became easier to get people to talk to you because of the, like the aforementioned specter of your incredible writing? Uh, because early on, sometimes there is that suck upness or maybe just a lot of no's from people who don't want to be explored. I get, I mean, I still, I mean, I put a lot of hooks in the water and get a few bites. I mean, I, there there hasn't been some rush of people wanting to bear their soul, you know. Uh, it's not, you know. No, I mean, I I don't feel like. I feel like every time you're starting from scratch. Huh? Who's the one you've tried the yeah. most for? Still waiting. I, mean, I tried for years with Roger Federer. Mm. Uh, I tried. You know. I really thought I was going to get Tiger. Uh, I I don't know. I mean, Cristiano Ronaldo. Although, oh, I, I, yeah. you know, like, have you seen that movie? There are many the movies. Movie he put out? Oh, okay. Cristiano Ronaldo's movie? Um, no, I haven't. Yeah. It's insane. I mean, you should watch it. It's nuts. Like, you're like, oh, okay, I get it now. He's crazy. Right. Uh, but, but it, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the most accidentally revealing portraits of an athlete that's ever been done. Hmm. And he did it. I just don't think he understands that the mere existence of it in its current form is the single most revealing thing about him. Yeah. Because you're just like, he watched this and turned to someone on his team and said, this is awesome. Get it out there. Like, that's what's crazy to me is there was a meeting where they were like, <laughs> Cristiano loves it. Like, I just would give anything to be the intern in that meeting who knows the movie's insane. Right, right, right. Sort just of to like be looking around like, yeah, like, oh, this what? is what group this is what group think is. <laughs> right. You know, like everyone in here knows this is batshit crazy and no <laughs> one is going to stop it from being released. Uh well, I definitely need to see this movie now. Absolutely. No, you got to go watch it right now. It's nuts. Um, well, you've written about a lot of people who get surrounded by groupthink, who are really famous, the Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods and Ichiro and all that. And you've said before, when you write about an average person, you want to make them seem extraordinary. And when you write about a celebrity, someone who is extraordinary, you want to make them as human as possible. Um, did you immediately know that when you started covering these bigger-than-life people? Well, 
I think I always instinctively knew it. I feel like that's a oversimplification that I've come up because I have to talk about this shit all the time and try to boil it down. <laughs> but I think that I think the idea holds though that that you know people who are really famous are just regular people, and all of the scale of their problems might be in line with the scale of the rest of their lives, but the core of their problems are the same as anyone's. And so, you know, I find that everyone just wants to be heard, you know? I mean, there's this weird thing in America, like, well, they're rich. They deserve it. Like any criticism, like, right. you know. Oh, they're Comes famous. With the territory, they right. Well, right. well, why? Like, that makes no, you know. I don't know. I find that odd. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you've said about writing profiles of these people that you want to live in the space between the stories they tell about themselves and the stories others tell about them. Figure out where that disconnect yeah. is to tell something that's true. Is there a common lie? Is there is there something across all hmm. of these people that you find is a through line that connects them and maybe is the reason for their success or is, is inevitable when you achieve their success. Now that's really interesting. I mean, I've never thought about it exactly that way before. I mean, off the top of my head, I mean, one, I think they, because of social media, I think one, they misinterpret how they are viewed. And I think they overestimate the amount of time that all of the strangers they interact with spend thinking about them. Mm. Uh, uh, I also think that, that everybody, if you're doing something at a very high level, you have a level of perseverance that other people who were coming up around you didn't have. And I think that most people attribute their success to that determination not to some innate talent, because I think most everybody has imposter syndrome. And so nobody mm. feels like they were just handed something, even the biggest phenom. I think everybody feels like they're just as talented as everyone else, and they just are willing to suffer more. And so I right. think that there is always a big gulf between what they view as their road to success and the things that helps them versus how other people view that i think that's a real common lie yeah and i don't know if it's a lie by the way but i think right. that's a real common disconnect when we're like you know i bet there are people who think ken griffey jr just got his whole life handed to him and i bet it does not feel that way to ken griffey jr back with more that's what she said with sarah spain in just a minute you guys know hiring can be a slow process. Cafe Altura COO Dylan Miskowitz needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company, but he was having trouble finding qualified applicants, so he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job, so you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter, said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash said. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash S-A-I-D. ZipRecruiter.com slash said. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. 
That's what she said. You wrote about your father's death in a great piece years ago, and since he died, that's sort of been a theme to your work when you're writing about Johnny Manziel and Urban Meyer and Michael Jordan, the role of a father in these high-achieving figures. Not a mother and a father, but more so just a father. Do you feel like your work would be very different if your father were still alive? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know. I mean, probably. I mean, yeah, you know what? I don't think I've ever been asked that. I certainly thought about that. I mean, not in that exact way, but certainly that thing. I think that if your work is not shaped by the tentpole things that happened to me, then I think there's no blood going to it. And Mm -hmm. so I think that, you know, talent is talent, but the direction that it goes in is determined by you know, our own interior lives and the things that we're interested in. I mean, I think the way to, you know, I always pitch people, I always have a theory on someone and then put it to them. I think this, and maybe that costs me a lot of quote unquote gets, but I also think that when I nail it, it gets them, you know, that somebody's like, Oh shit, these parties really been thinking about me. Mm. And so, you know, there's a certain amount of, uh, you know, you want to write about people who you think that maybe you've walked in their shoes and not in a, uh, a mercenary way, but in a, I'm trying to sort this out too. And I wonder if they are. So I think that, you know, if your work isn't influenced by that, I think that's probably, you know, probably, a, probably a problem. That's a great sentence. Uh, <laughs> no, but I, I, I definitely, think it's been, you know, not just influenced, but directed. You've also said, though, that you can't go in trying to prove something. So when you say that you've presented to them a theory or an idea and you then want to... Of a question. Yeah. I think, think, like, if it were me, I would be struggling with this. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's something close to that. Maybe it's not it, that it at all. Uh, You know, I think the, the best question is sometimes... It seems like this. Is that true? Because right. it's not. Believe me. So I'm like, no, 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 that's not it at all. I'm like, well, what is it? You know, I mean, I think it's just an ongoing effort to understand and to, you know, have, just to sort of serve as a tour guide as someone explains their own journey of understanding. Does that make yeah. sense? I mean, I think that's a lot of, you know, I want, I'm curious about all of those things. And I mean, you know, a writer told me one time, like, you know, the greatest thing in the entire world that can happen to a story is when your idea about it is proven wrong. Mm. Because, you know, just it's that energy alone. It's almost like the big bang of something great, you know, being forced to reckon with that adds things to a story that are almost impossible otherwise to find. Yeah. You you mentioned when you did the interview with the uh, Shirley Povich Center for Sports Journalism, and I'm not sure exactly the date on that, but you said, I only feel like in the last three years I actually know how to do this. What do you think, if I had asked you three years before that interview, would you have said, I know what I'm doing? Have you always thought in the moment that you knew and you got it, and it's not until later that you realize that you learned a lot more about how to do it? You know, it's interesting. I mean, I've always thought I was proficient to the level expected of me. 
but I've all, often been aware uh, of levels I wanted to get to and kinds of stories I wanted to write that feel, you know, only very fairly recently like I'm able to do. You know, I mean, there were, you know, there used to be stories that would read and really intimidated me that don't. Really, really famous mm. stories. Right. And there's still a few stories that intimidate me. And, I, you know, I wonder, maybe I'll have some realization about how to write those, or maybe those are just intersections of talent and timing that even that person couldn't recreate. I mean, you know, Tom Junot's Fallen Man, uh, Michael Paterniti's Eating Jack Hooker's Cow, or The Long Fall of Flight 111 Heavy. I mean, those, you know, I don't know if they could write those stories again. I mean, the answer is probably they could, but, you know, so I still feel hungry and I still feel like I'm learning, you know, I don't feel like this doesn't just feel like rinse and repeat, you know, that, Oh, I know how to do this shit now. I'm just going to keep doing it. It certainly does not feel like that. Uh, You know, I, you know, those are, there are places out in the ether, you know, that I think everybody who, tries to do something creative, you know, wants to get to. So, I mean, I don't know if that answers the question. but um, Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, mildly embarrassed to admit that when I sat down to write my first long-form story last year, I Googled Write Thompson How to Write because I thought I had remembered you doing a story that basically laid out how you do things. And I think I found it, although I tried to find it again and now I can't. So maybe I invented that thing and it never actually existed. But I remember thinking, I just wish Wright would tell me how to start this. Do I put a big structure? Do I do all the bullets and then fill it in later? Do I do it in the time in which all these things happened or do I cut back and forth and how do I know when? And so I wonder if you have a sort of set of tips that when someone asks you how you approach telling a long form story, that those are the ones you, that you go to every time. I know you've, you've talked about having note cards and post-it notes and some sort of system. Do you always tackle it the same way? And are you able to share those? Sure. I mean, well, there, you know, there's the micro, which is, you know, everybody just has to have a way of managing their own crazy. And so (laughs) I'm always terrified that I'm going to report something great and then forget about it. You know, and that terrifies me. I mean, because some of these stories, the note files are really big. And so, uh, you know, that worries me. So that's where the note cards are. I just, every single thing that might make its way into the story goes from a 600 page Word doc onto a note card so that it won't be forgotten. And mm-hmm. then, uh, you know, there's a great book called Writing for Story about outlining. Uh, I don't follow it exactly, but it's a, you know, I like the implicit theory behind it. Uh, Gary Smith uh, from Sports Illustrated is probably the best that ever did it. Uh, is he said one time, and I've just stolen this. I mean, I passed this off as my own when I talk to classes sometimes. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's just a f-ing theft. Uh, but it's, you know, profiles are, you know, what is the central complication of someone's life and how on a daily basis do they go about solving it? Mm-hmm. And I've said it so many times I can rattle it off. Uh, but that's just, that's brilliant. And that's absolutely true. And so, I mean, I think about that a lot. Uh, you know, I, uh, 
you know, I, I think I used to be too mechanical in outlining stories. Now I always have an outline, but I am willing to play with it. I mean, I'm doing book edits right now, and I just I have to hold this huge arc in my head. <laughs> and today I had to really move some parts around in a way that was straining my ability to do it without yeah. like I wanted I didn't you know it was all in my head and I was moving things around and having to remember across 40 50,000 words where things w- went and where they'd been introduced and you know how knowing to be and what people knew and what they didn't know yeah and uh and so like all of that was very uh all that was difficult and yet I also in some ways, I tried not to overthink it. Like, I tried to just do it like jazz. You know, I mean, let me just try to sort of feel my way through it as opposed to sort of getting a notepad out and Roman numeral one. Like, I wanted, right. to, I wanted it to be much more of a feel thing. So I have all these open Word docs with these sections cut out in them, and then I'm going through each one through the book and be like, it goes there. And now if that goes there, what do I need to change and erase? What do I need to update before and after? How does this affect all of that? And so I've been having to do that over and over again, and it's sort of making my head explode. Yeah. I have the multiple docs thing, too, and then you get confused about which is the final and where are the, the changes. It, uh, it's it's, uh, it's a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. I'm going to get that book, though. That sounds like a good one. I, I saw you mention it somewhere else, too, so it must be must be good. Um I want to finish by asking about the new stuff. What can you tell us, if anything, about your new podcast and the documentary you're co-directing with Seth Wickersham? We are doing uh, the podcast is a reported podcast. Uh, we're working on a name. If you got one, let me know. There are a couple of leaders in the clubhouse. Uh, but it is, you know, it, it's, it's the magazining of stories, for lack of a better word. It's uh, it's very much the spiritual child of the late great ESPN magazine. It is, uh, you know, somewhere between this American life and radio lab mm-hmm. and, uh, getting started. Actually, I just got an email about it literally <laughs> as we're talking about this. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, Seth and I are working on a, a documentary and that's about all I can say because mm. we're still figuring stuff out, but I'm very excited about that. He and I have been best friends forever, and along with our friend Eric Neal are doing this project, and uh, Eric is both of our editors in addition to uh, maybe being the smartest person in the room, and very excited about – I'm just excited about us doing something together. I mean, I think the last time we did something together was a new story at the Columbia, Missouri. So, oh, wow. Uh, Oh, that's yeah, awesome. So it's been a long time. That's really so I'm fun. I'm very excited about that. Yeah. Uh, well, I have loved talking to you, but before I let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. That's right, the Spanish Inquisition, the 10 questions everybody gets and nobody expects. Number one, what's your Desert Island album? You can only have one. Bruce Springsteen, Darkness on the Edge of Town. Nice. Number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Crazy work ethic from working on a farm growing up. Oh, nice. 
Uh, number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? My inability to find real balance in my life. Mm, that's a good one. Number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? Yes. Are you usually receiving or giving the punches? Both. <laughs> how, how recently was your latest one? Oh, God, a long time ago. Okay. Just wasn't sure. I mean, you were so sure about it. I didn't know if this was this, uh, maybe you were in a fight club no, or. <laughs> no, no, no. There have been several close calls, but thank God, no. Uh, by the way, I'm fully engaged in like the spirit of this thing. So I'm just f-ing answering. So I, oh, no, I like I, that. I don't really embarrass myself. No, What's that's up? what I want. I hope you embarrass yourself. That's the most fun. Uh, number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Oh, uh, Mick Jagger. Oh, wow. Post-heart surgery and all? Oh, he's, dude, he's indomitable. Still got it, yeah. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? I was at summer camp, and I don't know if you are the age where you remember those board shorts called jams, and I was yes. seven or eight years old, and I was seven, and the jams, like, you know, they look like regular shorts, but, like, when you jumped in the water, there'd be boats on them or palm trees or whatever. So I went to bed one night in my cabin at Alpine Camp for Boys. Oh, no. I got out of bed. Everybody started laughing and pointing, and I had sort of a roughly on the crotch area, a big oval, a big oval of palm trees. <laughs> I never thought about that. That is unfortunate. Yeah. I don't yeah, think there bad. were yeah, hyper-color shorts, but that would have been a problem for those as well. The, uh, the old yeah, color-changing yeah. shirts, if they were shorts. Uh, that is embarrassing. Number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? How much I work out in my eating habits. Mm-hmm. You know, the last person who said that on this podcast was our former colleague, Arash Markazi, and he immediately went and created an accountability social media sort of track of his eating and exercising and he's lost like 180 pounds or something crazy well one i'm not going to do the social media but two of course not i don't understand what i don't understand what's bad about fat shaming i would like to be fat shamed <laughs> maybe we will crowdsource people who just arbitrarily send you messages out of the blue from anonymous accounts right. that's great that's just what i'm looking for that sounds fabulous Perfect. Uh, number eight, if you could play commish of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? No conference calls. No conference calls? Yeah, I hate conference calls. And nothing ever gets done on me. <laughs> That's great. Uh, number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? Huh. Probably. I mean, there have been a couple of scary things reporting, but... Uh, I was very scared waiting on my daughter to be born. Mm. I mean, the, the, the other scary stuff was adrenaline rushes. This was right, a crack house. Right. Yeah, all that stuff's fine. I mean, flying over Baghdad in a helicopter was awesome. No real adrenaline for the daughter, though, just fear to make sure everything worked well, out. Just, you just don't want to screw it up. You know, yeah. I've been, anyway. Yeah. Uh, number 10, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Loyal, loyal, and loyal. <laughs> Man, I hope that's true then. You put all your eggs in one basket. 
Don't know, right? <laughs> and like, uh, you know, in the course of this life, we all do somebody dirty. You know, this is a crazy right. business. And, and it, it, that really sticks with me. Uh, yeah, for sure. Like I, I, it really, I don't like it at all. And I mean, you know, if you do this long enough, you get put in situations where you just are, you end up just almost accidentally doing somebody dirty. And that th- those things really stick with me. Yeah. Uh, finally, who would you recommend I have on this podcast? Huh. Well, that's an interesting question. I think you should have John T. Edge on this podcast, the Southern food writer. Hmm. Very interesting. Is it someone you know well? I do know him well. He hosts my one of the TV shows I direct, but he's the smartest person. He's one of the smartest people I know and is one of those guys who ethically puts his money where his mouth is, which mm. I aspire to. So he's the host of True South. He is, and he's brilliant at it. And just, you know, right now that right. show is, my, I think that's the favorite thing I've done in a really long time. I've had so much fun making that. I'll have to check it out. I haven't seen it. Uh, and he sounds like cool. a great guest. And you were a great guest. This was really, really fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, man, it's my pleasure. That's what she said. Laughter Permitted with Julie Foudy, one of my favorite pods, is back for season two. Debuts on October 23rd, which, depending on when you're listening to this, could already be in the past, which means you're late. Go check it out wherever you get your podcasts. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, fall foliage. I think we can all agree it's the best, right? Gorgeous, rich colors, nature's tableau, if you will. When fall foliage arrives, just a regular old stroll through your neighborhood can turn into what the East Coast folks like to call leaf peeping. And if it hits just right, you get to enjoy these views on a crisp but still warm autumn day. And therein lies the problem. I was walking around today admiring my beautiful city, trying to enjoy a comfortable stroll through nice weather surrounded by beautiful fall foliage, but unable to ignore the fact that autumn lasts for approximately three days in Chicago. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this. It's summer, then it's Indian summer, which is basically the exact same temperature but September. And then three glorious, beautiful days of fall. And then winter. Endless winter. Winter until June. I can't fit all of my leaf peeping into three days, not to mention apple picking and pumpkin carving and complaining about people obsessing over the very overrated pumpkin spice lattes. It's not enough time. I need more time. All right. feel good about what we accomplished today. I'm going to need my fall to last until about two weeks into December. And I'm going to need maximum leaf peepage during that time. And I'm going to need y'all to accept that a Starbucks mocha is a billion times better than a PSL. Don't at me. There. I fixed it. I've got a listener dilemma today. It's from at Chris Hooks 0223, and he writes, Sarah Spain, I need some advice. Is a house guest, a.k.a. mother-in-law, who's been living with us for four to five years, is she supposed to ask permission before painting chairs for her new house that she owns in my house? Asking for a friend. I don't think you're asking for a friend, Chris, because you said my a couple times. Also, I don't think she's a house guest anymore when she's been living with you for four to five years. I think she's a resident. But I am given hope by the fact that you said 
her new house, which I think means she's moving out and will no longer be a resident. That is good news. I love my mother-in-law, but I don't want anyone living in my house except for my husband and I and approximately 11 dogs. So it's very nice of you, first of all, to host your mother-in-law for that long. And it's nice that she's found a new place. And it's nice that she wants to paint chairs for that place. But you are 100% correct. She should definitely ask you permission before painting them inside your house. Paint fumes uh, are probably deadly. I think they are, uh, especially in an enclosed space. I don't know how big the room is in which she is painting. Why isn't she doing this outside or in the garage? And again, why didn't she ask permission? So your dilemma is a fair one to complain about. And unfortunately... Family is very touchy, and I'd like to say that it's as simple as saying to your mother-in-law, hello, mother-in-law, I'm so grateful that you are moving out and that you are painting these lovely chairs to take with you. Could you have done that elsewhere or at least warned us before or at least asked if we wanted paint fumes in our home and that she would give you a reasonable response like, oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry. I should have thought of that. I will never do it again. But I know better than that. I know that there's probably a reason why she didn't ask permission. And she might be someone who doesn't do well with boundaries or understand that she has been uh, in your space for five years and now is making things worse with the paint. So my best advice is to just bite your tongue until she gets the hell out of there. And then you won't have to deal with this anymore. I realize that's not a very good fix for you, but it's still my best advice. Good luck. If you've got a dilemma for me to fix, you can tweet it to me at Sarah Spain. Or you can go to the iTunes or podcast app, find That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, rate it a billion T stars, give me a great review, and leave your dilemma in that review. Maybe I'll fix it. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said. 